Our first passage will be Daniel chapter 7, and the second passage will be Revelation 1, verses 4 to 8. And we'll start off reading Daniel 7. Earlier, during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and saw visions as he lay in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and this is what he saw. In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. Then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from the others. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. As I watched, its wings were pulled off and it was left standing with its, with its two hind feet on the ground like a human being and it was given a human mind. Then I saw a second beast and it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying to it, get up, devour the flesh of many people. Then the third of these strange beasts appeared and it looked like a leopard. It had four bird's wings on its back and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. Then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts, and it had ten horns. As I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like, a human, like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. As, I watched, the th as I, I watched as thrones were put in place, and the Ancient One sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire, and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him, many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session, and the books were opened. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. The other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a little while longer. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled by all I had seen, and my visions terrified me. So I approached one of those standing beside the throne and asked him what it all meant. He explained it to me like this. These four huge beasts represent four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. But in the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom, and they will rule forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, the one so different from the others and so terrifying. It had devoured and crushed its victims with iron teeth and bronze claws, trampling their remains beneath its feet. I also asked about the ten horns on the fourth beast's head and the little horn that came up afterward and destroyed three of the other horns. This horn had seemed greater than the others. 
and it had human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. As I watched, this horn was waging war against God's holy people and was defeating them until the Ancient One, the Most High, came and judged in favor of his holy people. Then the time arrived for the holy people to take over the kingdom. Then he said to me, This fourth beast is the fourth world power that will rule the earth. It will be different from all the, all the others. It will devour the whole world, trampling and crushing everything in its path. Its ten horns are ten kings who will rule that empire. Then another king will rise, different from the other ten, who will subdue three of them. He will defy the Most High and oppress the holy people of the Most High. He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws, and they will be placed under his control for a time, times, and half a time. But then the court will pass judgment, and all his power will be taken away and completely destroyed. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will last forever, and all rulers will serve and obey him. That was the end of the vision. I, Daniel, was terrified by my thoughts, and my face was pale with fear, but I kept these things to myself. And I will be reading from Revelation 1, 4 through 8. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven, and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. Thanks for reading the weirdest passage in the entire Bible, Brandon. That is fantastic. Yeah, well, I was reading and studying over the past month. Of the folks that I read, there was at least three scholars who said they had never heard a sermon on this passage in the Bible before at all in their commentary. So, like, buckle up. It's going to be an interesting ride. Okay. Let's take a minute and pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, you are good. You are gracious and you are loving. You are from all eternity past into all eternity future, and yet here you are with us this morning. We thank you for your presence and the gift of your spirit. We thank you that you have been faithful to your people throughout generations and pray that you would continue to do so this morning as we look at this passage from somebody who endured a whole lot of difficulty a whole lot of years ago that we now try and make sense of his dream thousands of years later. But Lord, you are good. You are consistent throughout the ages. 
and you have good work you want to do in and through us this morning. So we invite you, Spirit, to speak to us. We pray that you would minister to us, that you would help us to have open hearts and open minds and open ears to hear what you might have for us. And pray that you bless our time together in this passage. Amen. So, like, I've had some weird dreams myself over the years. I'm one of those ones that tends to remember the dreams still when they wake up. Do you all remember your dreams when you wake up? Some? Some, right? Do you dream in color or black and white? Mine's always color. I have some friends who are all black and white. And I'm not talking about, like, their opinions. I mean, literally, their dreams. And I remember one from when I was two, maybe three years old. And I dreamed that I was in this pitch black room area dungeon type place. And there was this fiery skull in the background that was just laughing and cackling the whole time, just flaming around. And there was some knight looking guy on a flying bird in like full armor and everything. He was trying to do something to this flaming skull and save me somehow. And I'll tell you, like, that one sent me running out of my room, down to my parents' room, down the hallway, and I just curled up into, like, a little ball on the carpet beside their bed because I was too scared to even wake them up and get up into the bed with them that night. And the fact that I can still recall that dream 40 years later vividly tells you something about how much it messed me up. And some people would say still does. And... Like, all this from stuff that I know isn't real, right? Like, I know the flaming skull wasn't real. I have yet to see a knight on a flying bird. It would, it would be interesting. But for folks in Daniel's day, like, they didn't have CGI movie monsters to give them nightmares, right? The worst that they could envision or imagine was literally what they could envision or imagine, for a dude like Daniel, these monsters, like he wrote down about, were to be absolutely horrifying, and it shouldn't be surprising at all that it messed them up for a full week. For us, though, and really for Daniel, the question isn't about how scary the monsters were. The question really isn't even about necessarily what the monsters meant or who they're supposed to represent. I think when faced with monsters like that for Daniel... Or when faced with monsters for us, literally, metaphorically, however you want to put it, the real question is, who's going to save us from them? Because there is no Superman. There is no Captain Marvel coming down out of the clouds and no Nick Fury with a mystical universal pager to call. The guardians of the galaxy are not streaming down with Thor in tow, tow to come make everything better, right? Like, this isn't happening. These terrifying baddies were full of mutated body parts in all the wrong places, and they ransacked the world and everything that Daniel could see. So who's going to save us? I think the message for Daniel, and the message for us, is that kingdoms come and go, but God will bring justice and rules over all forever. Now, I think ideally with a passage like this that we're looking at, you do it with a question and answer type Bible study class because you're all bound to have questions about the passage or want to tell me at the end why I'm wrong about everything. And that's okay. 
But when you're asked to do 25 minutes on the Teenage Mutant Warlord Beasties from Daniel 7, you get what you get. We got it? Yeah. And you might not get the joke, and that's okay, but I guarantee you there's at least a dozen 35 to 45-year-old guys who are going to be singing that picture in their head for the rest of the day. Yeah, I got you. So a brief word about apocalyptic literature here. It's kind of a unique genre of literature that we don't really write in and that we don't really get very well in our scientific Western culture. It's full of symbolism, much as which lost on us thousands of years later, and I think we'd be well to keep that in mind as we read through it this morning. It wasn't intended as a puzzle to be solved, it wasn't intended to assign exact dates to happenings, identities, and references, and exact times, people, and events. The church, overall, has spent far too much time trying to explain everything and embarrassing themselves for millennia as to who and what is going to end the world. Because if Jesus said he didn't know when everything was going to wrap up, what are the chances that some dude today sitting alone in his dark basement with a laptop has it figured out exactly. Like El Zilcho, right? None. So apocalyptic literature is in part, and mostly, a way for people in exile to symbolically speak about the powers that were over them without fear of direct retribution from them. And a lot of the references here that we're reading are to past or current events for the author of the day. The point was to give Israel hope that the suffering that they were in wasn't going to last forever, that God was still in control, and that ultimately they would be delivered from what was oppressing them. Revelation was meant to do the exact same thing for the Christian church thousands of years later when John wrote it on that island all alone. Because kingdoms come and go, and although life might get rough, the end lesson, baseline thing to take away from all of this is God wins, no matter what. Because kingdoms are going to come and go. It's written in verses 1 through 3 and then carried on in 15 to 17. And I'm going to kind of splice things together from the interpretation and the original vision just so it all holds together. So in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed, and he wrote down the substance of his dream. And Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from others, came up out of the sea. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. And I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So Daniel's dream opens with the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Now some folks figure it's talking quite literally about the Mediterranean Sea, also known as the Great Sea. But the context of terms like, terms like four winds and the mutant beasties to follow that we see, it's probably safe to say this is more of a metaphorical reference to primeval chaos in the world and not a specific water body per se. 
Just about every religious framework from Daniel's time back there in the ancient Near East had gods conquering and taming the seas. Marduk waged war against the sea. Baal defeated the sea to rule over all the rest of the gods. Even in Genesis, we see the story of the spirit hovering over of the waters and taming them, as it were. So if you were an ancient human with ancient understandings of biology and the way the world worked, the waves and the seas would have been kind of the most untamable force that you could possibly imagine too. And so, metaphorically, it was pretty important. As far as the vision overall, there's a real correlation here that we're going to see between these beasts from Daniel's dream in chapter 7 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream that we saw about in chapter 2. The difference between the two visions, even though they're seeing the same thing, is perspective. Nebuchadnezzar saw all the rulers and kingdoms of the world as something to be enshrined and celebrated, like with a statue-type monument like he had in his dream, right? Something to be revered. He even built a literal statue to be revered. This vision is God's perspective of human history and rulers. What's the difference? How are they seen differently? God sees human rulers and kingdoms as wild beasts that subdue, kill, and destroy. Beasts that ultimately need to be put down. Seeing things from a different perspective can make a big difference in what you think of them. Like Mike mentioned, school starts next week for the kids. So if you're a kid here, still in the room, or maybe if you're sitting here and you were a kid, yeah, my kids are waving. How do you feel about school starting up again? Yeah, there's some thumbs down. It's like, you, I remember what it was like for me when school was like, no! Merciful, no! Like, you didn't want any of this to happen. It was terrible, right? You know it. You get it, right? It's the end of fun. It's the end of freedom. It's despair. It's bad. But when you're a parent, how do you feel about school starting up again? Yeah, that's right, right? Like, I know for me, I already booked a massage for the first day of school. <laughs> I made plans to play games with friends. I generally make a holiday out of the first day of school, right? Because my holidays, they're the busy time. Now, we're both looking at the exact same day and the exact same events that fill it, but our perspectives give us a totally different interpretation of what's going on with it. God doesn't see earthly governments and empires as a means towards good and the enrichment of his creation. He sees them for what they are. Beasts that ultimately serve themselves at the cost of good and life and that ultimately need to be put down. The kingdom of God is not about garnering earthly power to set up Christian kingdoms and empires in God's name. The life of Jesus in the kingdom of God is skewed power at all times for love, service, and humility instead. Because every human kingdom is inherently fallen and will be taken down in the end. First of all, we see this first beast. Babylon came and went. 
It's written in verse 4. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. And I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And the mind of a human was given to it. Babylon swept into the world stage like a roaring lion and was part of Israel's exile and desolation. The wings being torn off it, but then it being lifted up, might refer to Nebuchadnezzar himself having been humbled like an animal and then restored as Daniel prophesied from his dream. They may have been a means to an end as God allowed them to bring Israel into exile as judgment, but Babylon was not the good guys because of it. The whole burning people alive for not worshiping an idol for praying to the king really isn't great. You could say that it's not the best. The Medes and Persians then came and went. It says in verse 5, There before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. And it was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth and its teeth. And it was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. More than likely, Media and Persia were next on the world stage, as we heard about a couple of weeks ago with the fall of Belshazzar. The three ribs in its mouth may have been the three kingdoms that allied with them, Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. The Medes were on the world stage, even while Babylon ruled, but once Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar died, they took over in full. The Medes and Persians brought about reliable peace and order, but like the whole throwing people into a den of starving lions for not praying to the king thing, probably put them on the Amnesty International watch list that year. Then we saw the Persians and Greeks arise in verse 6. It's written, after that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. And this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Like, as an aside, no matter what you think of your premier or prime minister, it's probably better than what you got there. That would be really strange. This is where things start to diverge a little bit in the interpretation of stuff. Some interpreters see this beast as the Persian Empire splitting off from the Median Empire with such great reach and speed that they did it on their own. It had four heads, so it had lots of eyes. It could see all over the world. And it had four wings that could speed it to wherever it needed to get to. They took over and they conquered quickly. Others see this as the Greek Empire because they believe the fourth beast yet to come is Rome and not Greece. Now, whether it's the aforementioned Persians and their atrocities or the Greeks and their cultural steamroller that would crush anyone that didn't assimilate into worshipping Zeus and the Pantheon, along with the culture it came with, none of these empires are heroes to be looked up to. There was great technological and political progress under all of them, but there was also genocide in its wake. Next, the Greeks and Romans came and went. It's written in verse 7, Then after that, in my vision, at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. And carrying on in verse 19, it's written, Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, and most terrifying. 
With its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. As if the previous three weird beasts weren't enough, right? Now you've got iron teeth and bronze claws and ten horns. And one of the horns had a face that talked. I've seen some stuff. But this horn had a talking face. It's Pan's Labyrinth level stuff here. It's really weird. And it was funny, as I looked for pictures of what these horns looked like, it was really weird seeing Arteris' rendition of a horn with a face. Because you know what? It doesn't say this face had a nose, but everybody drew in a nose on all the pictures, because nobody knows how to draw a face without a nose. But anyways, if you're looking at weird and untamable beasts, how many horns does a usual, normal, fearsome animal on earth have? Dose, right? Two. We're used to that. That can still be scary. You see a bull coming your way, two horns, that's not good, right? You try and avoid that. Oxen, whatever else they might have seen as fearsome beasts back then. Two horns, right? Ten horns is five times as many as a normal beast. That, if we do the math, is five times as scary. So ten for Daniel, an ancient Near Eastern culture, was a symbolic number of strength and even of completion, saying this is the whole thing. So in ancient Near Eastern Israelite culture, it might be trying to say that this was the fiercest, biggest baddie of them all, the worst that you could possibly imagine. This, my friends, was the boss level of Daniel's dream. Now, whether it's Greece or Rome, we can get into that a little bit later. But either way, political and economic progress at the expense of life everywhere was what came about with the fourth beast. Now, this summer, over the last couple of weeks, my family finished the career grand slam of Saskatchewan Western Development Museum visits as we had been to Moose Jaw and North Battleford last year, and we went to Yorkton and Saskatoon this year. Finished up all four. And we saw all kinds of things that made us look at it and say, that was only a hundred years ago? Because the lots out back were filled with displays of what farm machinery had gone through over the last hundred years. And it's wild to look back on. Because you start at the beginning and you'd see a plow and a harness. That, my friends, is one horsepower, right? And then 20 years down the later, you see these enormous tractors that are the size of like steam engines and trains. And you think, that's gotta be thousands. And you look at the sign, 35 horsepower. And you thought, that must have been pretty impressive back in the day, right? My lawnmower now has seven and a half horsepower. It's wild. Sports cars that are street legal sometimes have five, six hundred horsepower. And the only people who are impressed with them are the people without a muffler on it. None of the rest of us want it. But what impresses people changes over time, right? Ten horns to Daniel and the rest of his people were literally and symbolically the absolute biggest terror of the time. It was the worst. But in the end, though, every king will come and go. In verse 8, it's written, While I was thinking about the horns, 
There before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And carrying on in verse 20, it says, I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which all three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now, there's some disagreement here among scholars as to which kingdoms and kings these four beasts represent. There's variance of opinion. They essentially line up, though, with the four parts of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, the one in Daniel 2, the gold head, the silver torso, the bronze midsection, and the iron legs. The big point of departure here, though, kind of comes over the fourth beast and this lippy little horn that picks a fight with God and his people. And that's exactly what it becomes at that point. It's opinion. Because that's all that we've got on this one. There's some that are quite comfortable in saying that Antiochus Epiphanes IV of Greece was this boastful horn that persecuted God's people. And we leave it at that. If the fourth beast is the Greek empire, it all really fits quite nicely together and makes sense. These folks are generally comfortable with not needing the details of the future to be preordained as such and worked out down to the details to carry on as God's people here and now. Then there are some who think that the ten horns are a literal ten kings and that ten kings didn't actually come and go before the arrogant one did during the Roman Empire. And as such, they point to this as a future end-of-the-world type prophecy about the Antichrist, like John writes about centuries later in the book of Revelation that we have at the end of our Bible. Now, these folks are generally of the opinion that things in the Bible should be taken quite literally at face value rather than figuratively and believe if we look for the right signs, we'll be able to discern who the Antichrist is and what the end of the world is going to look like. And like, fair enough, right? I think it's pretty clear which side of the discussion I come down on, but good and godly people can have differences of opinion here and still be all one happy family working together in God's kingdom. That's the story. Because if we think that this is where we split churches over, like, man, come to ADC class, we got stuff to work out. Because this is not that big a deal, okay? End of the day, it really doesn't matter what we think or what we figure out because as is the main point of the passage, Jesus wins anyways. So if I have any advice for you this morning as you try and interpret this, chill out. Take a breath. Don't sweat the details too much. And be at peace that no matter what you think you understand or don't understand, God's got it covered and Jesus wins anyways. That's right. Go Jesus. Knowing what things in life are worth worrying about makes all the difference in being able to live a good life or not. So, point one. If you are NASA and firing humans into the black void above us of space, you better well sweat every little detail about the shape, size, weight, timing, and purpose of every aspect of that voyage. Or else you get very expensive explosions where everyone dies. By all means, please be the most neurotic perfectionist you can be in that situation. The world thanks you. However, if 
you're going to go about life trying to plan what outfit you're going to wear on June 14th, 2023 to ensure proper rotation of your wardrobe alongside your potential future significant other going into next summer, I will offer you're doing it wrong. It's opinion. You're worrying about details you can't control for scenarios that are impossible to predict. The church has been guilty of doing this far too often. Taking apocalyptic literature far too literally and trying to discern details that are well beyond the scope of our pay grade. Trying to figure out and create order for ourselves to give ourselves peace of mind regarding things that really don't matter that much in the grand scheme of things towards the goal of living the best life for Jesus. Sweating the details in this kind of situation is doing it wrong. Just breathe. Love God. Love others. And be at peace that in the end, Jesus wins. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. But God will bring justice and rules over all forever. His God rules over everything. As a funny aside here, just in the midst of this, what was one of the abilities that Daniel was most well known for throughout his life and throughout this series that we've been working on? Hmm. Interpreting dreams, right? Yet, when he had a weird dream and vision here, what did he do? What does this mean? I got nothing. Right? He was absolutely bereft of any ideas of what to do with this picture. He didn't know what was going on, and so he walked over and he asked a bystander beside the throne. So, if that's the case, and Daniel didn't know what to do with his own dream we'd probably do well not to jump in to act like we can explain it all ourselves. God stands in judgment over everything, no matter what. It's written in verses 9 through 10, and carries on in 26 through 27, that thrones were set in place, and the ancients of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing and coming out before him. Thousands on thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court was seated and the books were opened. And the court will sit and the beast's power will be taken away completely and destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. Now, when God showed up to Moses, how did he do it? Burning bush. Yeah, you're right. Burning bush, right? When he led Israel through the wilderness in the desert, what led them? Pillar of fire. Huh? Drawing some connections here, right? So, when there is a dude on a fiery throne with blazing wheels and a river of fire, who has shown up? This is God. Ezekiel noted the exact same kind of stuff in his vision of a chariot when he had one. And when God shows up, it's pretty noteworthy. Because everything and everyone stops and answers to God in that moment. Because no matter how stupid and wild things might get in the house, when mom walks into the room, it all stops dead, right? The judge has entered the room, all rise, and nobody questions it. 
Empires might do horrible things and live like their power has no limits and their leaders are unquestionable and undefeatable. But when God enters the scene, everyone stops dead in their tracks. Because God holds every kingdom to account. It's written in verses 11 through 25. I continued to watch because of the boastful horn, the words horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth, and it will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. And then the torn horns are ten kings who will come from his kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones, and they'll subdue three kings. He'll speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. Now, work with me for a second, okay? If we go with the view that this fourth beast and all of its horns is the Greek Empire, the number 10 is really symbolic of being completion, meaning that all the kings are wrapped up in this, not necessarily a literal number of 10 kings. And for what it's worth, Epiphanes, like I mentioned earlier, was actually the fourth in line to be king when he took the throne. He subdued three others to take the throne. And he spent three years trying to outlaw Jewish religious festivals and practices, changing the set times and laws for time, time, and half a time. And in their vernacular, that equates to about three years. So in my opinion, and it's an opinion, That fits and makes a lot of sense in this passage. The things Daniel saw and spoke of and wrote to the people came to pass in the near future of what would be meaningful to those people. If it's a Roman kingdom that he's talking about on down the line and an antichrist yet to come, well, just about anything goes for who that might be. And really, we have no clue. And also, like, that's fair enough. Because in the end, who knows when the world is going to end? God the Father. It ain't the folks writing the books and blogs these days. I can tell you. The Bible codes are not telling you who the Antichrist is. It don't know when the world is going to end. No matter what the web link on the billboard at the end of the road is, they probably don't have a connection speed that fast. There's at least one wrong prediction that the world is going to end this year, every year it seems. I can remember a lot of them. Does Jesus know when it's going to all wrap up? Because he said he didn't even know in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. Does Satan know when the world is going to end up? Nope, because he's not more powerful than all-knowing than Jesus. Does Satan get to determine when the world ends with his antichrist puppet ruler when he wants? Nope, because the world doesn't revolve around him even though he wishes it were so. So then, these things being the case, how could we in all our limited finiteness ever imagine to be able to unravel and discern who and when makes the world wrap up with confidence? 
God must see and hear us at times and laugh at how much we sound like a group of five-year-olds speaking confidently about the nature of quantum wave theory. We can't know it. We don't get it. But we do know that God is the judge over everyone and everything for all time. And whether they like it or not, everything ends with and answers to God and Jesus is the one true king. Because Jesus rules over all forever. It's written in verses 13 to 14 that in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. And as I read through it, I thought, you know what? If you read a passage like that with anything other than a Southern Baptist preacher's pitched fervor, you don't really do it justice. So let's try again. In my vision, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming down on the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Amen. Like, if you can't get excited about that vision of Jesus, what are we doing? Like, we like being stoic and staid Mennonites, and that's good, right? Like, we have a place in God's kingdom. But there is a place to get excited about the king of kings coming back once for all to set it all right. Right? That's worth getting excited about. And it's interesting to note that of all the beasts in this vision, they were all subject to an unseen power somewhere in the midst of their reign. The lion's wings were plucked from it, and it was lifted to its feet by some unseen power. The bear is ordered to go and devour. The leopard is given dominion, and the fourth beast is slain, destroyed, and burned. Every king and kingdom is subject to God, whether they see it or not. Some just don't know it yet. And it's no coincidence that the once-for-all ruler, referred to as the Son of Man... Jesus referred to himself as such throughout his entire earthly ministry. Jesus saw himself as the one kingdom of God's ruler, entrusted to him, and that someday all people would answer to. The one with authority, glory, and sovereign power that all nations and people of every language would worship. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers and worship and obey him because everyone answers to Jesus. The vision of Daniel here isn't to give us exact details as to how things are going to wind up. The point of all of it is first of all to remind us that the world and its events are far bigger than just what it means to our individual lives. In our culture, we tend to frame just about everything through the lens of well, what does this mean for me? 
Not everything is about you. In the words of one scholar named Wendy Witter, self-absorption is a popular pastime. And if you're from North America, woof. Stories like this can serve to give us some perspective that we're pretty small and insignificant in the full scale of world events now and throughout history. The Bible was not written to us, but others long ago. And reading the Bible faithfully doesn't always involve the story revolving around us. History is not about us. History is the story of God, and we find ourselves well as we fit into it. The other things visions like this are meant to do is give us encouragement when we're overwhelmed by the suffering and disasters of world events and leaders. Because it won't stay like that forever. And in the end, God wins. And he sets all things right. Endurance is possible because the best is yet to come. Endurance only grows, though, through struggle, persistence, and perspective. This word to Daniel was intended to grow all three of those things in Israel as they suffered in exile and would continue to do so for quite a while, frankly. The point wasn't to encourage Israel until they could rule the world again. The point wasn't to tell them when the world was going to wrap up and end. The point was to encourage them that no matter what they faced, the rule of empires wasn't God's hope for them. The suffering wouldn't last forever, and that in the end, justice would come, the faithful would be vindicated, and Jesus would rule justly over everything for all time. It doesn't mean there won't be despots in the meantime. This does, though, mean creating some fallacious Christian empire isn't the answer. It means that while we wait and endure whatever comes, we do so not trying to read the proverbial tea leaves in Daniel and Revelation to discern the Antichrist and when the world's going to wrap up. Instead, it means we have the promises that we need to endure and love sacrificially and graciously until Jesus comes back himself and sets all things to right as the one just ruler for all time over all in all things. Setting up the kingdom of grace, love, mercy, peace, and hope. The one worth believing and pledging allegiance to. And the only leader worth believing in. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. But God will bring justice and rules over all forever. Let's pray together. Father, you are the one true king. And Jesus, we thank you that you showed us what real leadership and kingship looks like. Not ruling to have your own desires forced on others, but instead coming and loving sacrificially and graciously. Forgiving and helping and serving so that others could know your true love as much as you desire them to. Father, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity to be your people and carry on sending and sharing that message of love, hope, peace, and forgiveness with you. Lord, we pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, we look forward to your return and pray that when you do, you would find us faithful. Amen.